Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. For each episode, we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jeremy Kagan's new film, Shot. The drama follows the immediate aftermath of a shooting, as the victim, his wife, and the emergency medical personnel fight for his life in the critical first hour. The film simultaneously shows the experiences of the teen shooter as he tries to avoid the consequences of his actions. In addition to Shot, Mr. Kagan's credits include the feature films Gold as Balcony, The Sting 2, and The Chosen, the movies for television Bobby's Girl, The Ballad of Lucy Whipple, and The Hired Heart, episodes of the television series Karen Sisko, The Guardian, and The West Wing, and the miniseries Taken. In 1996, Mr. Kagan won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series for his Chicago Hope episode Leave of Absence. He was also nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Children's Programs for his 2004 movie for television, Crown Heights. In 2004, Mr. Kagan was presented with the DGA's Robert B. Aldrich Award in recognition of his extraordinary services to the Guild. He currently serves as the chair of the Special Projects Committee. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Kagan sat down with director Mick Jackson to discuss the making of SHOT. During their conversation, Mr. Kagan discusses his use of split-screen and the balance of perspective needed for the film, the research he did on emergency rooms in order to lend more authenticity to those scenes, and the roles that both revenge and redemption play in the story. Jeremy, that was the most astonishingly powerful movie you just made. Thank really, you. really. And it's evident watching it how much personal passion and heart went in it. Can you hear me now? Okay. You like so the movie. I'm feeling better. I just said this is the most amazingly powerful movie. And you can feel the personal passion that went into it and the heart. So, given the, uh, the credits at the end, which kind of um, say very clearly why you did it, I'm going to ask you why you did it. <laughs> you co-wrote it with Annika Campbell. Yes, and Will Lamborn, yes. Yeah. How did this come about? Is this based on a, a particular in incident, personal experience, or just the climate of the times? I think it's the climate of the times. Um, I think this has been an issue that I have been struggling with without realizing I've been struggling with it. And uh, somehow it emerged around seven years ago about wanting to do something about the issue, not even knowing what I now know about the epidemic of gun violence in America, but it just... It sort of stirred up on its own. Um, and I began talking about it with others. And then also because of the nature of the storytelling devices of, of, of using multiple screens, which is something I've done a lot in my work, I just felt there might be a really dynamic way of dealing with gun violence in a movie that is different from the way we always deal with gun violence in a movie, which is to cut away. 
and I'm as uh, responsible or guilty of cutting away as anybody else. My, my Emmy that I won opened up with a gunshot and somebody getting shot, and we cut away. My very first job was given to me by, um, by Frank Pearson. And Frank was a brilliant writer and a wonderful man and a, one of those people who was willing to give an opportunity to a new filmmaker. I was at the AFI when it first started. And he had created a television series called Nichols, which was about a cowboy without a gun. It was a sheriff without a gun. The series didn't work. It didn't, in turn, it didn't find its audience because the cowboy didn't have a gun. Um, and he asked me to direct the last episode, and in kind of a vengeance way, he decided to have his hero literally shot in the very first scene. So James Garner, actually, my very first work as a professional, the very first job I have, the very first scene I'm doing, is a guy getting shot. And I have a feeling some 40-plus years, this is sort of my response to all of that. Well, you speak about 40-plus years, and... I was trying to think of the last time I saw a movie which, like this one, follows it through, follows the shoot, shooting through to a life-changing experience, not something as we, we normally see in a movie. You open with a, a shot of somebody getting shot, and it's the usual thing of the, you know, the, the bladder of fake blood, and you move on. And I, think, I was trying to think back over the last 25 years, I can think of only two movies that have done this. Uh, Babel did it, where Kate... Blanchard gets shot in the, the bus in Morocco, yep. and you see the consequences of that. And even further back, 2006, uh, Grand Canyon, Larry Kasdan's film. Uh, if you remember, Steve Martin plays a movie yeah. producer who gets shot in the leg. And, and that really opened up my eyes for the first time to how life-changing an experience was. You know, at the end of the movie, you see um, Steve Martin walking out of the sunlight with a limp, with a, with a cane, and into the dark of a soundstage opening. So... This is a kind of no-go area, isn't it, politically? And, and you're going into very kind of dodgy territory. Nobody I does this. I think it is, in a way. Um, I feel like we had a, a, a good story with good characters, and as we approached the normal process of trying to get a picture made, um, we just didn't get the responses that we would have, I think, liked from any of the sort of more conventional studio. I just think they didn't want to touch it. And, you know, it's a tricky subject when you really think about it, because... We all know, those of us who sort of, and I'm sure everyone in this audience knows, that you know, the idea that this many people get shot in every single day in America, that it is 20 times the amount of people who get shot anywhere else in the world, that's not the country we want to live in. And so therefore, even, I mean, one of the, one of the fascinating things is, is, is members of the NRA, people who carry guns and, and, and believe in them, Actually, over 74% of them believe that, in fact, there should be more protection in terms of who gets to buy guns, that guns should not be sold illegally, that guns should even be made safer. And I'm talking about people who are supporters of this. Why doesn't it happen? So there's a part of me that feels like it, none of the power sources want to touch it, even though I think we all actually want it to change, and, in fact, it can be changed. So my my feeling was it was that way. And... There was a part of me as I learned more about this and met people who had been shot and spent time with people who had been shot, I felt that it was important to really push to get this made and hopefully for you to see it and for others to see it and maybe to motivate us in small ways or in big ways to actually make the changes that we, I think we all want. Why do you think more people don't go into this area? I mean, are we responsible? Are we culpable as directors, as movie makers? I think we are. For um, you know, the, um, the amount of movies we make that are, are 
I, I fests and, and you know, body I mean, counts. I, we, we all can go back to Shakespeare and see how many people die at the end of any good Shakespeare play. And so the whole violence is all part of good drama. And there's no question about it. But I think we live in a bit of a different time. And that different time is by exploiting and emphasizing the idea that the gun is the solution to all our problems. And we do that in our movies. And I think it's one of the reasons, you know, as this movie was evolving, that sort of um, container of movie making evolved in the storytelling. It didn't start, we didn't start with him being this sound guy doing uh, Western sound. That evolved. I didn't, and we didn't have the ending that we have in terms of the, sort of the shootout mm -hmm. um, that are all sort of the movie versions of how this would work. Um, it all evolved. So I feel that we were dealing with in many ways what how movies deal with this subject, which is, you know, I remember the first time I saw uh, The Wild Bunch, and I thought it was spectacular. I mean, it was great filmmaking. And it was sort of the first time blood was getting, at least from my point of view, I hadn't seen Hodorowsky, I should have known that, blood getting spattered all over the place. And it was like the first time, because usually, you know, I grew up with when somebody got shot in the Western, you didn't see anything except the person fall down. Then it starts to bleed a little bit, and then we get peck and ball, and it's blood everywhere. And it was incredibly exciting and new and refreshing and became the standard. And so we're just used to it. But, but we never saw the consequences as you show in the film. I mean, one of the most striking things about it visually is your use of multi-screen, you know, double screen and sometimes three screens. I guess from what you said earlier, this is something you already had in your mind because it's a, a technique you've used before. Did you have any discussions with yourself in the making of the film in post about, the obviously there's advantages and disadvantages. You run two parallel stories and you get you know, real time happening in both of them. But, well, you, you solve it, I think, brilliantly by not using that continuously, but you go to one story and then you go to another story. And in the sense that movies are evolutionary, I, I credit very much my editor, Norm Holland. Um, initially, this was a conceit. I thought, I'm committing to this. It's going to be, these two stories are going to be on the screen all the time. I was totally committed to it. And if you'd visited my house, you would see in the back office this long table laid out with every single scene doubled so I could see how, how and I remember the very first day of shooting which was the stuff in the ambulance there I knew that there have to be quiet time because there was some dialogue that we had on the Miguel side of the story so there I am working with the actors in real time and I'm suddenly saying okay we're not gonna say anything now uh, and of course, everybody had to stay. The, the people, the EMTs, and Malcolm Jamal, and 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 Noah had to stay in character within the, you know, twenty seconds. Okay, now we can continue because, so, so I'd worked it out. You get a real sense of that. But, but interestingly okay. enough, as we evolved and got into the editing room, uh, it realized that sometimes it wasn't appropriate. Sometimes it just became a conceit rather than. You know, at this moment, you really want to be with Noah, or this moment, you want to really be with Miguel, the part that, that, that uh, George Lindbergh Jr. plays. Um, and so we learned that. And I appreciate the my editor sort of pushing me and saying, look, do you really want to do it this way? I mean, you may want to consider. And at first, of course, like being a arrogant defensive filmmaker, I'm going to stay with my idea. But inevitably, it became clear that there were times when we really needed to emphasize it. So now I think it's a much better balance. 
Well, what you do get is, um, well, several things, obviously. You get a real sense of the cascade of effects in real time. Uh, I wanted to ask you, did you shoot all the the, um, the ER scenes in, in sequence? Yes, we, yeah. we actually shot the entire, from the moment of the hospital, being in the ambulance all throughout the hospital, that was all done in sequence. And so that was like, I think, a 10 or 11 day period of all of that. And then it was done in the order of how that all happened. I have to say the performances are amazing. I mean, Noah Wiley acting basically from here up yeah. because there isn't anything else. And then the next time you see him five months later, it's... It's in a wheelchair, anyway. Yeah. Amazing performance. I, I must say, I, um, uh, you know, as we were working on it, I, I personally saw how committed he was to being in that moment, feeling those moments, being honest with all of that. And there was like, about, I don't know, seven or eight, nine days into that, I started to get personally kind of concerned for him and even moved on my own level because I realized he was committed and remember, this is this is known as the, in terms of the medical, I didn't know this, but this is known in the medical profession as the golden hour. It's an hour of right. someone's life. And if you supposedly are able to survive that hour, then you live. How you live is another question, but you can live. And this golden hour for Noah was 11 days. So I, my, I admire his ability to stay with it and be with it. And, all that. and as, you, as you gathered, these were long takes. Yeah. These were uninterrupted takes. Amazing cast. I mean, Sharon Leal is, is very, very sympathetic. Um, the boy, Jorge Linderbaum. He likes to be known as George. George. I, okay. That's his choice. Um, and he, he, it's interesting. This was his uh, second movie. His first movie turned out, I just didn't realize, to be made by one of my students, uh, a movie called The Land. I don't know if any of you saw it uh, last year. Um, and so it's, you know, this is his, his second, and now he's starring in, as, a, as the lead in some giant uh, uh, Warner Brothers Marvel movie. So his career is launching. You get the sense that there are no real villains, at least no villains on, on screen in this movie. Everybody's a, a victim. The, the three central characters are, are victims. I, I like those three-way splits where you, you see all of them being victims. And and the boy is kind of, he's alone as as Noah is alone, surrounded by all the, the medical technicians on on the the bed in the OR, in the ER. So he's he's alone. You know, people are not hearing what he's saying, or they're not supporting him, or they're, they're standing in the way. I think the only villains on screen are possibly the the gangbangers, his his brother, the, who his cousin rather. And even cousin. even him. But you must see in your head that there are villains off screen. The, the villains in here are are. Honestly, the people who make profit by selling us guns and ammunition, those are the villains. Um, you know, because this is a business. The NRA in the 70s, this is a fascinating, I didn't know this, was an organization essentially about safe guns and the safe usage of guns. That's what it was all about. And then the people who wanted to sell guns and ammunition got a change in leadership in the NRA. And then inevitably it became this don't touch a bullet, don't touch a gun, or you won't get a vote. And if there are villains, it's the villains who are making profit by this. Because, you know, there's a ripple effect. I mean, every one of us is affected. I'm affected, I think, in the terms of the last number of years that I've been dealing with this subject. Um, and I think we all are. And so for us to realize that when one person gets shot, you're getting shot. I know that's a 
sort of a spiritual metaphysical concept, but it also, in a way, is the truth. So, you know, we're we're the people that are in the hurricane right now, and we're the people on the streets of Chicago and New Orleans who are getting shot. Um, they're all of us, and for us to be able to identify with them so that we can shift our own behavior and the world that we live in, I think that's maybe why we're here. Well, I, I think you achieved that in the first 56 minutes, I think I timed it. Uh, you're in real time, so you can't look away. Yeah. Not only can you not look away, but you can't ignore the other story that's happening. Um, the, the whole feel of the, the movie is very kind of actuality. It's very yeah. handheld camera and POV shots and... and, yeah. and and yet it has a sense of heightened realism, which I, I very much appreciate. I, li I like that style. That It's not quite magical realism, but things can happen in it that really amp up the, the sense of immersion in the, in the story. I, I think, it, it, I think it, you know, one of the things, uh, my, my, my cinematographer was really quite a brilliant guy. So um, a Polish guy. Jacek Vaskas, he's a terrific cameraman. Oh, well, there he is. I, well, never mind. Hey. I don't want to give him any Congratulations. Credit. Looks great. But one of the things that we were speaking to each other about was when that we would shoot conventionally until the moment that the, our character, the one that Noah plays, gets shot. And then we would shift it so that it would only be through two points of view. You would see Noah, and you would see uh, Phoebe, the one Sharon mm. Leo plays, and you'd see what they saw. But there would never be an objective camera angle. We would never right. come back to what I would say is what cinema does, which is to establish you know, a, 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 a more objective point of view. We were totally subjective for that entire hour in terms of their story. Yeah. And then to figure out how to shoot that. And initially, we, we, we got really excited. We thought, well... We were working with some people. In fact, some people come here to the Directors Guild on, on Digital Day. There's this camera that you can wear on your head. And so we got that camera that you can wear on the head. And we're very excited about this. But, but as, as Jacek pointed out, you could only shoot with a wide angle. So you couldn't really, in that sense, right. make more selective camera shots. So they adjusted it to put on longer lenses you couldn't wear it for more than a half a second. Your head would fall over. It was so, so we had to figure out another way to sort of get a camera as close to um, both Sharon and Noah to be able to get their point of view. So we were really talking about an evolutionary, again, style of how are we going to tell this story. And then once we go to five months later, that we would return to a more sort of conventional style of yeah. shooting except for the shootout at the end. And you get a real sense in it that, that first 56 minutes of the, the experience of being in a hospital. Yeah. You know, it's a mixture of the real and the unreal. It couldn't possibly get any realer because you're actually your life is on the line and you're hurting all over the place and yet everything is unfamiliar and you don't get the whole picture. It's uh, totally subjective, as you say. And there's also, and uh, this is uh, to the credit of, of uh, um, uh, Will Lambert, who wrote the first version of this script, um, uh, that he spent a lot of time in hospitals with EMT guys and gals and got their dialogue. So in, in those materials, although this, uh, Annika really created the characters that we now see in this mm -hmm. movie, um, but that specific sort of dialogue of, and you know, and then we've all been there in the hospital where we're in trouble, but they're used to it. And if, if anything, they're even a little numb to it. So all of a sudden their dialogue doesn't reflect our anxiety. 
there was a wonderful moment. So, so you get this sort of banter, which, which is part of what you hear and, uh, that he's hearing all around him, saying, you know, what's going on? Will anybody talk to me? Because they're busy doing what they're doing, which is, in fact, saving lives. But they, they have a certain point of view. But I remember this was a wonderful moment for me was um, when we talked to the EMT guys, and, and they, they came, and our actors could only rehearse the EMT stuff on the day, because you know, that's just when they were there. And there were some wonderful EMT, Martin Blout, um, that um, um, was our, who's, was a phenomenal EMT guy. He was showing everybody what it is. And I remember the actors wanted to be really concerned. It's, you know, you know very nervous about them. And they were saying, no, what you do is, if anything, you make light of it. You make it like it's not a big deal. So that the person who's in shock maybe can have another perspective than it's a big deal, even if it is. Mm -hmm. So they had to learn to sort of let go the, this is really important, in order to be able to let the patient know that you're being taken care of, it's going to be fine, even if it isn't. How much research did you do? Did you actually go to an ER? Oh, yeah, or? I spent many, many, many a right. late evening in an ER and watched how boring it is until all of a sudden it isn't. something happens. Yeah. And then there's this incredible intensity. And then, as the movie suggests, things sort of lighten up again. Because immediately they do whatever has to be done. But once that's done, you may be just waiting for other things to happen. And they sort of dissolve away because they've solved the initial problem. But yeah, I spend a lot of time. And so what's amazing is who we are as individuals. Somebody can be shot, I saw this, three times and essentially be talking like you and I are talking. Another person can be shot in the foot and be in absolute agony and terror. So we all respond differently to this. The magical realism we were talking about, the fact that within this very um, actuality style where you are actually in the moment and it's incredibly intense, you have the, you know, uh, cued by a fever dream or the, the drugs or whatever, you have these flashes of, of, of memory. Was that something that came to you in, in post or was that always there? You see images in the overhead lights and the fluorescence on the The, the idea was always there. I didn't know how to do it. Um, and then when we were actually on the location and scouting it and I was lying on the gurneys looking up, I saw, oh wow, we could put in those images. So in the sense, you know, the movie started to talk to us and tell us how it wanted to do that. I thought the whole movie had, was a bravura movie making, really. It's, it's a, a virtuoso object lesson in how to make a movie like this and have it grip from second to second. So I, so many things. You know, um, the sound, obviously he's a sound editor, so the sound is important, but the sound from moment to moment is kind of very, lots of great subtleties. You go from the sound of a, a machine gun in the video game that the, his friend is playing or his brother is playing, seamlessly into the sound of the helicopter blades yeah. overhead. And, and you go from the music and, and the sound seamlessly backwards and forwards. Your composer was... Well, we, you know, Bruce Broughton wrote Bruce, the music. Yeah. I've luckily enough worked with Bruce on two other movies. He's a brilliant composer and, a, and it just he's an encyclopedic knowledge of music and all kinds of size. And even though we wanted a very limited amount of, uh, of, of music because he was able to sort of take sound effects and emerge yeah. them into the scores, although he used some classical instruments to do that. You know, one thing I did want to want to mention, uh, I don't, it was the, in, in terms of how movies evolve, 
there was a moment when the first idea of this movie was it was going to be live by the gun, die by the gun. And in the very, very first sort of version of this, the character that the kid played was a wannabe gang member. Um, he inevitably becomes a gang member in the, in the last third and inevitably gets shot. And dealt with this for a long time. And then there was this shift in my consciousness. And I think it was a conversation that Annika and I were having. I luckily live with the writer. Sometimes that's not a good idea, but in this case, it was a brilliant idea. And there was this moment when we both sort, sort of came to the idea, we want this not to be about revenge. We want this to be about redemption. How can we do that? And that was a major shift. So taking the kid out of a gang and not having anything like that be part of it and be really being innocent and, and just being bullied and therefore has many of the responses the bullies might be, particularly in this gun-ridden culture, maybe if I have a gun, I'll be safer. That became this. But then we wanted to, to, to somehow redeem all of these characters in some way. And I remember when we were shooting, actually in the midst of shooting, and um, we didn't have the very end. I mean, the idea of the shootout came where, um, and I remember, by the way, when Noah read the version of it, he came to the point where it said, this character shoots the boy. He took the script and he threw it across his room. Because mm. he was like, that's where this is going? Back to revenge? But then he figured, oh, well, it's got a couple more pages. Maybe I better pick it up. He read it and then he realized where we were going and called me up and said, you know, I want to make this movie. But the thing that, that, that uh, there was this wonderful moment. And again, it's sort of like, where you're open enough in the process that somehow something comes to you. And I remember the two of us, this is before we shot that last scene, I remember the two of us suddenly, early in the morning, both looked at each other and said, you know what? What if he just asks him what his name is? And then we both knew. That suddenly shifts it, because if you now are a being that has a name, you're no longer an object, and you're no longer a thing to be destroyed or revenged against, you now just another reflection of us. That whole end sequence is, is extremely powerful. Um, I think there are, there are two moments that are really shocking. Um, the first is when you see uh, your item is shipped and it's a gun, because you like it, check off if there's a gun, it's going to be used. That's, yep. that's what we accept. And then when the boy comes in, you really don't know. I didn't know. It's incredibly intense. How is this going to work out? What is he going to do? And the moment he, he shoots the boy, I thought, you know, like Noah, oh no, that will, that's horrible. But you are optimistic. You show all those possibilities happening in, in instance that the boy gets shot, he gets shot accidentally, she gets shot. You realize that's what a gun does. That's, that's what a gun does. Any outcome is. But you're optimistic. Oh, yeah, I, you're optimistic. That's I, why it ends the way it does. I think I'm a person who believes that we actually can make our own lives better, that we can actually care for each other, that in fact the work that we do um, has the possibility of being healing. People have healed me, so why not be optimistic? I think that's, that's for me anyway, the, the strongest feeling that comes out of this movie is kindness. You're the incidental kindness of people like, like the nurse when he's in the ER. Um, everybody just, just has that innate kindness in them and, and 
you get a great sense of the city, particularly with the split screen stuff. You get a sense of the lives lived in the city that normally don't interact with each other. It's, it's wonderful. I think deeply when, we were, when we were choosing a location, we wanted to choose a location in the city that was one of these spaces where all different ethnicities and diversities of, of, of cultures live in the Echo Park, Silver Lake area is very much like that. It, and also what I liked about that was when I was talking to Chuck Parker, our production designer, I said, Chuck, I don't want to do the flat LA. I want to somehow, because I feel like okay, the metaphor, this is a roller coaster ride. Is there a way that we can get the hilly part of LA? And in fact, that area is one of the hilliest areas in Los I Angeles. So you open on September 22nd? We open September 22nd as of four days ago in 10 theaters for five days in each theater. Please, if you, I really mean this too, if you feel the movie is worth being seen by others, tell them to please go see it. Uh, and maybe maybe we will save a life. That would be the most remarkable thing we could ever do with a film. So please spread the word. It's at the Lemley um, here in the Village East in New York and um, the cities like Detroit and Baltimore and Chicago and New Orleans and D.C. cities, in fact, where gun violence is an issue right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming months as awards season approaches, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.